On this week's episode of Mike Coscarelli Rules, is it unethical to be a fan of Woody Allen? Are Dr. Seuss books racist? And Gene Getman is back to discuss a gender-neutral Mr. Potato Head and cancel culture. That's a tease. And this is Mike Coscarelli Rules. He is so cute. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli. Mike Coscarelli. (laughs) Mike Coscarelli is here as well. He's the producer for this failing fucking radio show. A big hand for Mike something Italian. Welcome back to another episode of Mike Coscarelli Rules. I am your host, failed comedian, Mike Coscarelli. Very glad to have you back listening to the show. We're getting a lot of good positive feedback lately. A lot of you guys liked the Race Taylor episode. Happy to hear that. Um... He also wants to come back and do it again. He feels he felt bad because he he um he didn't record audio on his end, so I used the audio from the Zoom. And much like myself, a perfectionist, he was upset and he was like, "I owe you a do over, man. I could have done better on the audio quality." I was like, "All right, race, come on. Like you can, you're welcome back anytime, but you don't owe me squat." Everybody seemed to like the episode. Um. I'll tell you what, guys. Things there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're. It sort of feels like we're at the end of the tunnel here in New York City. It's beautiful out today. I know it's like full spring in March because it's March 10th, and literally in two days from now we could have another snowstorm, and that could be that. But it is. It it is an immediate mood stabilizer to go outside and see some sunshine and see people walking around and unloading trucks and doing all this this stuff. Uh, and it's nice. It makes me feel like this summer could be the craziest summer of our lives because I think that if people are are sort of let out of their cages and it is not uh, and it's like a nice summer, uh, I think people are going to go nuts. I think it's going to be like like party town i think people with these vaccines the cdc is saying that if you have both shots you can gather indoors with other people that have had both shots and it's all good you just have to wear your masks outside so that is a uh, an optimistic sign and i feel optimistic for the first time in like i think i think 11 months i didn't feel so bad at the start of the pandemic but by april of last year i was a mess um and now it's starting to feel like things are are going okay uh, obviously being stuck inside, been streaming a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about here before we get into Gene Getman, uh, our monthly social villain segment, which is a good one, a lot of editing, but uh, a good one. <laughs> um, I'm going to bring in associate producer, Ronnie side, Ronnie, are you with me? I'm with you. How's California? California is is good, but I'm hearing you talk about New York Spring, and I'm feeling very jealous. Trust me, it's not quite here yet. We're getting close, but it's we're still a couple. I think we're a couple of weeks away before it's like full on, you know, uh, allergy season, sneezing around the city type of spring. But yeah. Um. So you and I were discussing yesterday when we were planning the show. Uh, Woody Allen came up. He comes up later in the episode uh, when we eventually bring Gene into the show. So there's a new show, a docu-series on HBO Max right now called Alan v. Farrow, which is all about uh, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow's divorce and also the first episode, at least, which is the episode that I've seen so far, is um, it, it, I don't know that, I don't know that there's a lot of damning evidence necessarily, at least through episode one, but there are a lot of firsthand accounts of people who claim that they saw inappropriate behavior between Woody Allen and his daughter, uh, uh, Dylan Farrow. 
And we were talking about this and we wanted to to discuss it a little bit. I have a couple little a couple angles that I wanted to ask you about because you're a film person. You're in film school right now. Um, hilarious that you're working on a podcast as a film person. <laughs> but uh, I was a film person in college too until you know I got caught up in radio. But Woody Allen has always been one of my um, artistic heroes. Um, and I think that I was sort of... I saw this documentary coming out and I heard people were talking about how you have to see it because there's a lot of stuff in there. I think I was actively avoiding it because I didn't want, I kind of wanted to keep my head in the sand in some ways because Woody Allen is somebody that I admire so much, again, artistically. Um, and having watched the first episode, it is, it's, it's tough to watch. Uh, do you agree? Uh, you've seen a little more of it than I have, but overall, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I've seen the first two episodes. Very hard to watch. Very, the second episode is, is quite emotional. Um, but yeah, I was just feeling, I felt very gross after the first episode. Yeah, uh, me yeah. too. I, I, I felt exactly the same way. Um, because I always, I, how old are you? You're 20, right? Yeah. Okay, so what do you remember of, when you were growing up, what's your, what, what, what's your first um, reference to Woody Allen? Like, where does he come into the lexicon for you? Because I was a kid when this stuff was going on, and I kind of knew who he was, but I had never seen a Woody Allen movie until I was probably a, a teenager, like, like 17, 18. But I kind of knew Woody Allen as the weird guy from New York that, like, married his daughter, his, like, adopted daughter, you know? And there were, it was sort of, Weirdly, when I was growing up, I remember it being kind of like a punchline that like Woody Allen and Soon Yi, that was sort of just a joke, you know? Um, and now we're in this era where we take things like that very seriously and they should be taken seriously, but we weren't for <laughs> for most of the 90s at least. Um, so where does Woody come into your sphere? Because I'm assuming you were not born when the the period that I'm talking about where it was like a huge tabloid story that even though I was young for, I, I, I have a memory of it. So what is Woody Allen to you in terms of that? Like, do you remember somebody introducing him to you? How was it? How was he introduced to you? Similar thing. He was just kind of the, the weird New York guy. And I remember seeing Manhattan Either my dad showed it to me or just seeing it on TV and just being like, wow, this is a really beautiful movie. I, I can't believe this is that guy. Mm. Um, but yeah, in my head, he was always just I, to me, he was kind of a distant memory. I feel like he was a figure of the past. And I thought mm -hmm. that everyone had just kind of put him in the past, like, oh, he married his daughter. And that was that. Um, so, yeah, I think he was a pastime for me. So you you didn't have the reference where it was like he was still. By the end, he hadn't made all these bad movies yet in the 90s when I was a kid, yet he was making them. But up until that point, he was uh, he was an icon. And he was still, he was probably at his, I don't know if it's his, the biggest that he ever was, his apex, because he's been very famous since the, I mean, I guess the early, early 70s, late 60s. Um, but I always... I don't know. I never really thought about it much. This this whole scandal. I always I saw the sixty minutes interview with him from the nineties when this was going on, and I remember watching it, thinking like, "Yeah, Mia Farrow is just some crazy ladies, and they're they're they have this like ugly divorce, and he's trying to, um, 
you know, she's trying to just make it seem like he's this horrible father and, you know, we call somebody a molester or whatever. But then, like you said, after watching episode one, it does kind of become this thing that's really difficult to watch because the way that people are talking about it and you just to think about like an adult, you know, uh, they described him putting the suntan lotion on Dylan Farrow's body. And there's like one of the friends of the family was saying that he like put his finger between her ass cheeks. Like hearing that stuff, you just kind of like shudder. You're just like, oh, God, <laughs> you know, and it does sort of I don't know. It does make me um, a little – it's a little difficult to all of a sudden go back and just be like, right, I'm going to pop in Manhattan or I'm going to pop in – you know, I, so there's like three or four Woody Allen movies that are like my favorite movies. And I don't know. I, it, what do you think as a young person? You guys have a different view of this stuff than we did when I was growing up. This was not really – we've always had conversations, my generation, about trying to separate art from the artist. But, you know, at, at 20 years old, you're in college. What are people your age, what do you think that they think about something like this? Not even necessarily just Woody, but when something like this happens, let's say that the Michael J- Jackson documentary comes out or R. Kelly – is that game over for you guys? Or even just, you could speak to your own opinion, but do you think that that's sort of just like, all right, that's it. Like we're kind of done with R. Kelly or we're done with Woody or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I I think it does depend on the person for people like R. Kelly and for people like Woody Allen. I think with Woody Allen, he, he did this thing where he made, he created a perception of himself for the world through his, like this character that he was playing and through his movies, that's how he wanted people to see him. And that's how, people saw him but then obviously behind closed doors he was this monster and very clearly like you know sociopath of sorts so I think with something like that you can't now knowing what he's actually like you can't separate the art from the artist because it's kind of like this I mean it is like a faux persona same thing with R. Kelly like all of his songs when you listen to him now you're like ooh that's not right. Well, right there. And there's, there's clues in like Manhattan is a creepy movie. If you go back and watch it, yeah. he's dating a high school kid in, yeah. and he's in his forties in that movie or he's yeah. playing somebody in his forties in that movie. But he tries it to is, glorify it. He tries to make it seem like it's a normal thing in the movie. Um, or at least I don't know. It's not I, weird to go. Yeah. I mean, I guess that there's an element of saying that it's not weird. Uh, cause they never really, they just mentioned that she's, I mean, they mentioned that she's in high school, but it, I have to, I'd have to rewatch it and, and to jog my memory, but I can't remember any moments where somebody just like grabs him by the fucking shoulders and is like, she's in high school, dude. What yeah. are you doing? Like there's references to how young she is and there's references to him like dating a younger woman and like maybe she's too young. But there's no references, I think, specifically. There's no character in that movie that just like is like slapping him, like, "What? Stop it! What? Is, this is insane!" Yeah. <laughs> no, they're they doing this. They just make little casual jokes about it. They're like, "Oh, she's 17," and he's yeah. like, "Yeah, she's 17." But it's not. It's never this predatory thing. It's just kind of like he he makes it normal. And at the yeah. time, he was he was dating a, a high schooler at the time. In, yeah, in it's, real life. it's a little strange. Uh, it's a little strange, even looking back at that, and the fact that that was kind of a, a clue. I mean. It's a little weird, but here's here's the other caveat to separating the art from the artist, which is why again it it it's it seems like it's a something that is easy to be conflicted about. So let's put it in the perspective of your work, Ronnie. Um, you are currently in film school. You want to work on a movie, as you know. A Woody Allen movie isn't just 
Woody Allen. It's not just his work exclusively. There's a there's a bunch of actors involved. There's a million people that work on these things. There's camera people. There's lighting people. There's there's producers. There's all these people that are involved in the film that seemingly, to our knowledge, haven't had you know a scandal in their life where they're you know molesting adopted children or or unadopted children or what have you. Um, is it fair to those people to all of a sudden by canceling Woody Allen and making Woody Allen's work, um, not suitable for viewing because of something that he's done? Is it fair for the hundred people that work with him on a project that now their work is going to get buried as well? I no, it's not. And it's unfortunate. Like Annie Hall, great film, but brainchild of Woody Allen, you know, brainchild of Woody Allen, but Diane Keaton won an Oscar for it. And Diane Keaton, by all accounts, is fine. So does that cancel out the whole performance? I mean, it doesn't cancel her performance, but it makes you, if you watch it again, you can't, you can't watch it the same. Obviously you, you, you don't set, like you can separate Diane Keaton as a person from that performance and from Woody Allen. But when you watch that film, you just can't watch it the same. Because so you're just basically, thinking about Woody Allen. So we're in a position now where... Because where, I don't know that I fully agree with that. And I think that that's also why there, it's a bit conflicting. Because it's like... like First off, there's probably... It's a shitty way to view this. But there's probably so many people in Hollywood that have done horrible things that are involved in, in the film industry. I think that there's a certain type of person that is drawn to that industry in the first place. Same thing with politics. Same thing with... Um, you know... Uh, sometimes you use sometimes athletics, like their personality types that are drawn to certain things. And uh, it seems like people that are drawn to show business are just monsters in one way or another. Uh, that doesn't, that shouldn't cancel out all of the bad things that Woody's done, but it does sort of put you in a position where it's just like, if I, I don't know that it's fair to just sort of um, kill anybody that's been around him working on one of his projects because he did something terrible. You know, and it is a, this is again my opinion, but it is sort of the, um, uh, it's a, it takes a village to make something like this, you know? Yeah. I do, I do agree with you actually. And I think it also depends on personal feelings because I'm, I'm thinking now, like, I, I'm not going to be able to, I mean, I can't watch Woody Allen movies now, but then I'm thinking Kill Bill, one of my favorite movies produced by harvey weinstein and i watch it all the time and don't think twice about it so i think it totally depends on personal feelings and the situation at hand but so what happens now i tarantino seems like a weird guy oh yeah i don't i don't know anything but what if what happens if if it comes out that tarantino did something crazy is that it no more kill bill Oh, I can't even think about that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's I a wild that hypothetical because he hasn't, yeah. by all accounts, done anything. But you know, but Tarantino also hasn't like given a false perception of himself to the world. You know, he's weird, and everyone knows that. If something yeah. came out about came out about him, people would be like, "Oh, all right." But with yeah. Woody Allen, it's like he was Woody Allen, and he was this guy, and people thought he was one way, and then and then yeah. he married his daughter, and you know, the perception changed. But yeah, a lot of weird stuff involved there. Uh, yeah. All right, that's fair. The other thing that we wanted to talk about, I had a, a horrible, horrible dating app experience sometime in the last week. Um, uh, 
I told you about it. We talk about it later on in the episode with Gene. But essentially, I was talking. I I had a conversation with a girl who was a conservative in New York City. Tried to keep it as respectful as possible. It ended up in a not respectful place. I don't really know why. Uh, it seemed like it was fairly unprovoked. Uh, you'll get the full story a little bit later on in the episode here. But um, it got Ronnie curious because we were kind of talking off mic about the differences between dating apps in your 20s and dating apps in your 30s. And I do think that there are I, – I have now done both. Ronnie has only you know, uh, had the experience of being on them in her 20s in her 20 in her 120 <laughs> or one year in the 20s um but i do think that the experiences are quite different um currently what what's your experience like right now ronnie you said that the kids this is i sound 100 years old but you, you said the kids are using uh tinder right yeah and they use t- i mean tinder is is such a, a vast app um there, there's there's straight Tinder and there's gay Tinder and Naturally. people use Tinder to make friends to people. You, you'll be swiping on Tinder and it's like, I need a plug or I'm looking for bandmates. Like a plug like use, somebody that's got weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. use Tinder for everything. It's crazy. But that is wild. It, they use it for dating also. OK, so what have you used it for? Just dating? Yeah, but I don't even really use it for dating. I just think it's entertaining like my roommates and i would just swipe for fun and just be like look at this um yeah but yeah it's it's it is really entertaining uh especially straight tinder so because every other photo is just a guy with a fish in a college hat they all I keep hearing same. that is that really yeah. true no it is true they all look the same yeah <laughs> that is wild when i was 20 well i guess when i was 20 tinder wasn't out yet i don't think tinder really was around or relevant you gotta remember when i started using those apps there was still kind of like a stigma around it like you're a loser what are you doing on these dating apps and then for a second it's like the people that were on the dating apps tinder specifically was like the hookup app like when it came out i was like 24 probably 23 24 using tinder and um it was like the app where you match with somebody in the city and it was just like Hey, like, let's meet up immediately. You know, like, where are you? Come meet me for a drink, whatever. It's like Saturday night. Like, Hey, I'm out. Where are you? Come meet, you know? And that's what Tinder was like six, seven years ago. Now dating apps have evolved to a place where, cause here's the thing. When you had the, the freaks on the dating apps early on, it was way more fun because <laughs> just freaks are just more fun, period. You know, they have less inhibitions. They're they're more likely to actually meet with you and hang out and like, like, let's just do this right now. Like, let's see whether this works or not, whatever. Um, and then at some point it became normal to just be on all these dating apps. And that's when you had the influx of boring people that came into the fold. So at least on the mail, I'm sure it's just bad. You were saying the guys with the fishing, with the fish in the hats and all that shit. Um, all that is, that makes sense. There's just a bunch of basic people on these apps, period, man, woman, whatever. But um, the thing that's weird about dating in your 30s, now there's like, there's a certain level of conduct and respectability that's supposed to take place on these apps, which never was the case when they first came out. You were just like, you'd say the craziest thing. People would say the craziest things to you. And that's how it was. Now, you, if you're on Hinge, you know, you're talking to somebody and, and it's like you have to have this, you're supposed to have this respectful conversation and also try to sort of stand out, which is hard enough as it is. Um, but the thing that's fascinating about being on those apps in your 30s 
is a first off like people are granted we're in a pandemic but if you're like a hookup person at that's over in your 30s like you have to set your fucking as a man at least you have to set your settings to like 24 or something crazy which is just unbearable you don't want to actually go out with those girls to begin with um we have to set your your settings super low to match with people whose lifestyle is conducive to just being casual and hooking up whatever uh and in your 30s dating is nearly impossible because you're Finally, everybody's baggage has finally caught up with them. So if you're still single, 30 plus, and you have had... if First off, if you haven't been in some sort of relationship, uh, that's a red flag. Like if you start dating somebody and you're just like, you've never had a boyfriend you like for an extended period. You never had a boyfriend for a year or, or anything. That's a red flag. So there's that. Um, first, secondly, you're dating... You could be dating divorced women. Uh, or women with kids, which is something that I never would thought I would. I have not dated any women with kids, but I have gone on dates with women who have been divorced or broken off engagements and stuff, um, which there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not it's vastly different from when you're 25, when that's like a like a like a kink almost as opposed to just normal and your reality where you're just like, oh, everybody. Yeah, I get it. You're divorced, whatever. I, you know, Um so there's that, but everybody's baggages, they, your baggages have to line up when you're 25, you meet somebody, you guys are both like young and like beautiful and, uh, having a great time and living your life. And then in your thirties, you've, you're just like a Vietnam veteran. If you're still in the dating, dating scene, you're just like smoking a cigarette, like, Oh man, I've seen some shit. How, what about you? And somebody's like, yeah, I got cheated on by, by, uh, my ex-boyfriend. What's your story? Ah, yeah. She kept, she couldn't decide if she wanted to live in New York or California. <sighs> let's shack up. Let's see how let's, you know, and then eventually it runs its course. Cause you guys, the, you're fucked up in a type of way. Then the other person's fucked up in a type of way. And if the way that those, if the ways you guys are fucked up, don't match up, it's over. You got no chance. You're going to have a fight or somebody's going to just like panic and leave. I've had both of those happen to me where I was like, I kind of like this person. And then literally the next day I get a text that's like, I don't think we should see each other anymore because I, I think this is going in a positive direction and I don't think I can handle that. Or you get the other thing where somebody's like, it's already getting to a place where it's nice and you're sort of semi-involved and then you get into a fight with the person and it's just like the demons come out and you're just like, oh, I get it. I understand why we're both still single and <laughs> we're, we, we are not each other's person. It's weird. But at 20, you're also, correct me if I'm wrong, you're not looking for like the, the person you're going to spend the rest of your life with, are you? No, absolutely not. Right. So keep yeah. that mindset. You've, you really, I know that everybody is going to, is probably telling you this and your parents, your sisters and brothers, whatever are telling you this, but like you have to enjoy this while you can do it. Cause once it goes away, oh my God. It is a nightmare. Dating in your 30s is bad. It's bad. It's just not fun. It's not fun because you're like looking. You don't want to be doing it. You don't want to be out there like fucking. There was such a fun element of being like single in my 20s. And now it's like a it's more of a sad thing where you're just like, you're sad. I'm sad. Does our sad link up? Does it work? Because we can be sad together and maybe cancel each other out. It's brutal. Is that the segment you were hoping to get? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's what I needed to hear. Well, now because I'm, I'm thinking now too. I'm, I'm just with the whole dating app thing. I mean, I've, I've been on and, and just swiping, but nothing has, has come of anything because I haven't been interested in anyone. But also, I'm just so excited for this pandemic to end so I can get back out to bars and stuff. And I'm turning 21 this summer, and to just meet people in person, um, that's way more exciting, anyways. So, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it, it's more natural. You're not really supposed to be meeting people off of six pictures that they have on the internet. Exactly, it doesn't yeah. really it do, it doesn't do anybody any good for being yeah. honest, you know. Can I I have a question um, yeah. about the dating apps because this this has happened to me especially now cuz I feel like the pandemic has driven everyone to dating apps if you're single just out of boredom at least. And I see this a lot on gay Tinder especially. Have you swiped on or at least seen anyone you know in the New York circle? Like recognize people? Like people that I like other women that I've that I just know that have like yeah. popped up. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, it all happens to me all the time. I'm like, oh, hey. Yeah, and I've, the bigger your network gets, the longer. I mean, wait till you run into exes on the dating oh, apps God. or whatever. It's brutal. I had yeah. a, I had a, I had a full blown blown spiral when the first time I saw my ex on a dating app, and it was oh, like. No. I immediately went to the, I was at my parents' place and I immediately like went over to the liquor cabinet and like <laughs> poured myself a drink and like, it's like, you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> you don't, oh, no. don't worry about it. You're going to be all right. Um, Worst thing that's happened to me is I, the second I downloaded Tinder, I, I had swiped maybe like four people and then my brother showed up. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. I have, I have not had that. Yeah. I my deleted the app. Been, yeah. That would, that would, that would, I'd be rattled after seeing that also, I think. But yeah. Oh, because then you have to you have to really, I don't know. I don't know that it'd be great if my if like my sister saw. I don't. My dating app is not necessarily my profile is not like too bad, but it is funny because you're seeing the type of person that whoever this person in your life is, um, what they do to sort of um, what's the word I want to use? Seem appealing to the opposite sex, or yeah, you know. Uh, not necessarily opposite sex, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's different. It's a little different than being like the, the, the nice, the nice little boy or girl in the family, you know? Yeah. It's gotta be. Cause you have, you can't just be, um, I don't know. This is like a deep rooted psychological problem that I got to deal with my therapist. But, um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're you're still in the fun phase of using the dating apps, so just enjoy that while you can. <laughs> yeah, especially post pandemic. Something. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's good to know that I can find weed on Tinder if I need it. You can find anything on Tinder. Well, that's good to know. Uh, on that note, I think it might be time. Do you have anything else? I don't think so. Okay. Now I, f- I feel like I need to delete Tinder and cleanse myself of something after this conversation. No, you'll be fine. Keep it going. The only way out is through. Keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's Ronnie's side, everybody. Uh, you can find her at Ronnie's side on Instagram. Uh, I'd say that it's time to get into this conversation with Gene. This is a good one. I think this was a, a, a good week for cancel culture. Uh, when I say a good week for cancel culture, it was just popping. Uh, the last week to two weeks... Um, you have Mr. Potato Head becoming no longer Mr. Potato Head, just Potato Head, which didn't actually even end up happening. You have Dr. Seuss getting canceled for some outdated uh, uh, racial stereotypes in some of his books. 
Uh, and you got Pepe Le Pew being written out of Space Jam. Well, not even written out of Space Jam, not appearing in Space Jam as a um, uh, as the Looney Tunes decide to sort of put him on the shelf because he contributes to rape culture. So Gene and I have a nice long conversation about, you know, who's out of line in these situations, who's not, um, what the future future of cancel culture is in terms of our uh, literary and artistic worlds uh, and what that means for our culture moving forward. Uh, it's a very good conversation. Like I said, there, we did a little snip snip on some of these things because – you know, it's Gene. <laughs> Let's be serious. It's just there's this is one of the reasons why we're not doing the show completely together anymore. And he's he's more on like a like a a guest basis because I need to be able to take out some shit that he says that shouldn't be aired. Um, but this is a, a lot of fun. Production pieces will be back, guys. I'm telling you, we have a hard stop on this project that I'm working on. This side gig that I don't even really want to talk about, but. Once that's done, you get 100% of Mike Coscarelli's focus on Mike Coscarelli rules. And I think you already have 100% of Ronnie's focus on Mike Coscarelli rules, but that remains to be seen. (laughs) All right. Rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Tell a friend. Do all the stuff that we've needed you to do. If you want to reach me, you can find me at Mike Coscarelli on Instagram. You can also email the show, coscrules at gmail.com, C-O-S-C, rules at gmail.com. Gene Getman is up next. We'll be back in just a few seconds. Mike Coscarelli and Gene Getman are <laughs> social villains. All right, guys, welcome back to Mike Coscarelli Rules. It's that time of the month. You know what I'm talking about. I'm joined again. Period. <laughs> Can't even let me get through the fucking intro. <laughs> I'm joined again, once again by Gene Getman for our monthly social villain segment. Gene, how you been? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. If you're a new listener and you're not used to this, this is uh, this is me and Gene's old podcast that we do once a month on my new podcast. Uh, and we usually take a look at some of the things that are happening in the culture um, because we are really, by all accounts, in a full-on culture war. Would you agree with that, Gene? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is uh, this is about as bad as it's ever been because I think that this is the um this is really the culmination of all of the things when we started the show it was sort of like an anti can not even cancel culture that didn't really exist yet but an anti PC show um because we were stand up comedians and we were trying to sort of be uh, you know vanguard against this um you know debilitating uh lack of free speech in creativity which we were off on it's only seemed to have gotten way worse cancel culture has sort of grown out of that and become a a thing now where it seems on a pretty almost daily if not daily weekly basis people are getting canceled and sort of um uh scrubbed out of would you say the culture would you say society what's how would you put it best do you think 
Yeah, I think that's about right. People are being scrubbed from the culture, uh, society. I think that's just being murdered when you get scrubbed from society. (laughs) So I don't think we're there yet and hopefully won't be. But yeah, I think cancel culture has really become the dominant culture. Or right now, what we're seeing is an attempt to replace the culture with a legitimate mainstream cancel culture. just, Just partially. And really... Um, you can call it the culture wars, and I would agree with that, but really it's like a war of epistemology. That's how, that's really where, and epistemology being sort of the way that we um, understand things to be true, right? That's epistemology. How do we know that something is true? Where do we get our truth from? And that's the battle that's being waged in the culture. How is it that we know that something is true? Do you think it has so much to do with truth or do you think it has, I I think that that is an element of it for sure. But I also think that part of the issue is that there is now in 2021 and then the last couple of years, there is sort of an equity um, in morality where for a really long time, I don't think that that was the, the case. Like morality was sort of this thing where it was good to have, but we didn't put any sort of restrictions on our entertainers to be moral. Uh, I, I don't think it was sort of accepted for a really long time that if you were in specifically show business or politics um, or finance, big business, if you were in some sort of high powered, high profile job that you were kind of a bad person. And now it sort of seems like that's not the case. And, and it's a tough thing because there's a lot of people there's a lot of heroes of mine that I feel like it's a lot harder to defend now. Like I keep, I've been meaning to watch this Woody Allen, Mia Farrow documentary on HBO. I don't know if you've heard or seen about this, but it's like a, is it new? No, I haven't. it's come out in the last couple of weeks. And I think it's primarily, you know, you know, the story, uh, him and Sun Yi and, um, and their other young daughter who he allegedly molested, um, sort of a telling of it from what I can see from sort of Mia Farrow and, and uh, Dylan Farrow and all, you know, uh, their perspective on, on what happened. Cause I think that the consensus was that Woody sort of controlled the narrative in the nineties when it was happening. Um, which, you know, again, to your whole hypothesis about truth, I guess, you know, how are we ever really going to know what happened? I mean, you can really just you base it off of, you know, I haven't seen this documentary yet, but you're kind of basing it off of uh, the culture of believing the kid. Um, again, I don't know what's in the documentary, so I don't I don't really want to like comment on it too much. But it puts you in a position where you have to make a decision over whether or not um, it's responsible to be a Woody Allen fan or not even responsible, but ethical to be a Woody Allen fan because he's made movies that I love, but he's done potentially some questionable and shitty things, you know? And I think that we're in this place now where the standards of all of what was acceptable in the past to, to be in these, um, to be sort of like a twisted person who becomes successful is no longer acceptable. Well, I think it's not necessarily that we're holding people to a moral standard, right? Because it's not entirely clear that we held people to a moral standard before, right? Really, the 
question of epistemology is not really about whether how do we know that Woody Allen didn't or didn't molest his daughter. That's not really what I was talking about. That's not really epistemology. That's kind of like fact checking, right? We don't know. You know, it's like, who do we believe and things like that. But the idea that being a fan of somebody's art because they were a flawed person is somehow irresponsible. You know, you're you're implying that that carries some sort of, you know, real life um, consequences that merely by enjoying his art, you're somehow hurting people in the real world and that you can't enjoy somebody's art because they, let's just go on the assumption, right? The worst case assumption that Woody Allen is the least charitable interpretation of what they say about him. Every, every bad thing they say about him is true. Every good thing they say about him is false. And the only yeah. thing he's ever created that was good is Annie Hall and <laughs> Manhattan, right? That's yeah. really just his entire claim. Kind of like if, if let's just say Hitler okay. would have made, <laughs> I'm with you. you know, 2001 a space odyssey. <laughs> You know, yes, Hitler, the great artist. <laughs> yeah, it, it just replace Charlie Chaplin with Hitler, another person with a Hitler mustache, but much less, you know, uh, uh, much less malicious. Yeah. Let's, and let's say that it's still Hitler, but he made some really great silent films also, <laughs> which he did make some silent films. They just weren't very good. Uh huh. But well, to some, just, they were great. <laughs> yeah, to a select few. But. The idea that you can't enjoy art because of somebody's uh, moral indiscretions is really like a, I, I think you can look at it several ways. You can look at it as like that, that's just, you know, wrong, right? Or, but you can also look at it through the lens of politics where that sort of, um, uh, that sort of intention or not intention, but that sort of, um, uh, a prescription that you you shouldn't enjoy somebody's art, right? It's not even like I can't enjoy somebody's art because they're a bad person, which would be like a personal choice, right? Sure. I just can't, right? Yeah. I'm watching this and I just can't, I can't watch Manhattan anymore because of the things that I, I think about Woody Allen doing to his, to his daughter for some reason every night. Uh, and I just can't watch it. That's one thing. That's a personal choice. But for others to imply that you shouldn't enjoy something, I think that's a very cynical and um, politically biased position to take. I, I don't think that's a uh, that that's a good faith argument made by somebody who, you know, has a some sort of moral stance. It's like when we were doing the podcast before, you know, we would kind of see a lot of these people that are um, th- that are pushing for cancel culture as overly sensitive, right? Or they have these like very. Um, uh, um, whatchamacallit uh what's that word um, i don't you gotta help me <laughs> yeah hold on like empathetic intentions right uh-huh. they have a lot of empathy for other people and because of that they just can't take it right these so-called bleeding heart liberals but i don't really see it that way i think that some people maybe believe that they were doing things like that because they have sympathy but really i think if they looked deep down inside themselves psychologically they would find that the thing driving them is a need to control other people. It's really a, a sort of evil, so to speak, to attempt to control the way other people do things, you know, for the, um, for the reason of some sort of morality or, you know, like for their own good or for the good of society. That's kind of where most human evil comes from is sort of this idea that 
other people should be doing or shouldn't be doing something because for, it's for the greater good and that you as an individual or as a group gets the say to control other people's enjoyment of things. I, I understand. Yeah, I get you. And I don't I don't necessarily disagree. I think the thing that we might disagree on at, at this point, and maybe not, I don't know. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it happens a little bit on both sides. I think the right the right they're more they're less likely to try to cancel somebody. Um, but they are I think they're more vindictive. And I think that it's highlighted here. I have a, I have something that you're going to love. Uh, so obviously, you know, I've been on these dating apps, you know, single, single guy out there just perusing for some chicks, you know? Yeah. Um, so I matched with this girl, uh, a week ago, maybe whatever, like, I don't know, uh, not that long ago and, uh, very attractive and it's, you, you haven't been on a dating app in a minute, right? Like you don't really know what they're like anymore. No, not at all. Okay, so uh, Hinge on on Hinge. Yeah, I'm aware of Hinge. Yeah, you know how there's prompts. So let's say that let's say I I think that you're cute, Gene, and I want to get your attention. Uh, you have a bunch of pictures on your profile or a couple little prompts, and it'll say like you know, don't tell my mom I eat ice cream after midnight or something like some Jesus. you know stupid little prompt, yeah. and you can like each specific thing. So let's say that like you put on your thing you know a picture of you with that wild hair that you have today gene Mm -hmm. uh i could like that and then you'll see that i liked your picture and then if you think that i'm attractive or whatever you can accept it and we can start talking so it's it's like a different twist on the swipe game does that make Mm -hmm. sense so this girl liked one of my pictures i thought she was cute i matched with her and then we started talking and then i realized early I hadn't read her profile because I never do that. <laughs> I'm more into the pictures uh, that she was conservative. And I didn't. She has oh, no. it. She has it like. No, but listen, though, she has it like posted on her thing that she is conservative. So mm-hmm. the first the thing that she responded to was I have on my job uh, that I work for guys. We fucked. And she said, what is this podcast? And I was like, uh, you know, I guess about guys I fucked. Yeah, she, that's what she was asking me. She was like, are you, so are you gay or are you like whatever? I was like, no, I just work on this show and, you know, like it's it's about what you think it's about, whatever. And she just comes out of the gate like hot, like on sort of just like like coming at my head a little bit, which is weird because we matched on a dating app. And it was this sort of unprovoked thing where she was just like trashing the podcast and out of the gate trashing like slut culture. Um, she was... She was being vindictive. So we have started having this conversation. She tells me that she listens. I don't listens. know if I would say that it's vindictive, right? She, that's I would not, say that's it's not v- something. I mean, it's probably a little, you know, out of line. What's right? a dating why just, What are you talking about? Yeah. Like, why Why would we? Like, why I would you say vindictive, though? That's not vindi- vindi- I don't think that's the definition of vindictive. I think it's that's vindic- just kind of. Aggressive and rude? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's call it aggressive and rude then, because this is a dating app. You're supposed to meet people that you're. Sorry, trying my, my to fuck. autism is acting up. <laughs> it's okay, Gene. <laughs> um, but we go on this whole thing, and then like we got, I got to a point where I was asking her, and I, I thought that we, for the most part, had a pretty respectful conversation. After she mentioned that she listens to Ben Shapiro religiously or whatever, I was like, all right, well, this isn't going to work for us. But like, I'll, she's oh, too cute. bad. I'm single. <laughs> so you uh, like, you know what? <laughs> uh, I have somebody I can recommend. For you. <laughs> if you like Ben Shapiro, you may also like Gene Getman. <laughs> um, 
so we at a certain point I was asking her I was like can I just ask you something and I'm not trying to like I'm not making fun of you or anything she's like oh is this a political question I was like sort of uh, you know do you meet a lot of guys in New York who are conservatives I'm really just curious like I'm not trying to like start shit with you or anything like I just I'm just fascinated by this because I have not, I have yet to run into a girl who was like hyper conservative on dating apps in New York City. And uh, we have this conversation and there's a lot of, you know, we, we're clearly not in the same place about like where we're going. But then she ends, she ends like, uh, I, I mentioned to her, I was like, this is intriguing to me to a degree. I was like, I, I never matched with a conservative girl. Like we're having like an interesting conversation and we're not like, being horrible to each other not yet at least <laughs> and then um i said like i i think i'm kind of intrigued by this like what do you think and she goes nah more like repulsed <laughs> and i said oh was it something i said she says yeah everything about you you work for a podcast called guys we fucked you sleep with lots of women who put out easily you wear a mask outdoors <laughs> and you have an ig post about your taste in porn which is probably some joke or tweet yes i find you repulsive um I she mentioned in there that I wear a mask outdoors like so she just carried on this conversation with me that I had thought was fairly respectful and then just turned on a dime but I think the point that I was trying to make is basically like she she sort of showed up to this conversation which was not even really supposed to get political because it's a fucking dating app but she showed up to this conversation sort of ready to fight and I think liberals on Twitter do that too. But I think that this is, again, I mean, we've had this conversation when we do this show a million times about sort of how the cable news networks are dividing people in that way where you you turn it on and it's constantly just like liberals are doing this or like Republicans do this, conservatives, whatever. And I think that yeah, it's is- interesting, actually. Yeah. One of the stories that you sent about uh, Mr. Potato Head came yeah. from CNN. And yeah. I saw the same story from Fox News because uh-huh. that's what my parents watch all the time. Yeah. So I actually did want to mention that it's very interesting how the same story is being reported from these two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, and- let's start. Let's start with that because Mr. Potato Head, the three stories that we wanted to talk about. I mean, listen, cancel culture is back. This is a strong week for cancel culture, baby. We got Mr. Well, Potato Head. I just, just want to. Pepe Le Pew. We- Go ahead. Move to that. I just want to speak on behalf of this girl that you met. You know, really, look, I'm not, I wouldn't really characterize myself as a conservative, right? Or certainly not a Republican, but I also don't want to say that in the way like I'm trying to distance myself from conservative or Republicans because, you know, nowadays the, it's kind of like this, remember this joke I used to do when comedy was still a thing, when people used to laugh and joking wasn't a, uh, you know, uh, an example of white, uh, supremacy (laughs) okay but i used to do this joke that um conservatives are going to be the next closet right people would be coming coming out of the closet instead of gay they'd be coming out of the closet as conservative and it's really kind of come to fruition to us to a degree i mean conservatives are really being um i wouldn't say persecuted but like the step down from persecuted in society i mean there have been alarming and you know frankly um Alarming (laughs) Uh, (laughs) calls to um, persecute conservatives from, you know, people like AOC and just the Democratic Party completely trying to discredit the very notion of a person with conservative values. And that's that's just bad. You know what I mean? That's just like a um, like a bad faith, bad choice to make 
for the coherence of society or cohesion. Yeah, but I don't, I don't really, I don't think that that's as new as we let. I mean, I think maybe we're more aware of it because pe- people also like to pretend that they're way more tuned, like, l- like linked into what's actually happening in politics. And I don't think people ever actually are, you know, like I think a lot of people try to p- play armchair uh, politician where they're just sort of like, they have a couple people that they like their champions. Like a lot of people like AOC. And I think that there are people that are starting to lean more radical or whatever, who are just like, yeah, she's awesome. 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 So cool. And they just ride for whatever she does and says, at the same time, it's like, you know, going back to this girl and girl, people like her. I think that there's a lot of people that are just like, you know, I'm a conservative, whatever Trump or whatever Ted Cruz or whatever, like, you know, Ted Cruz had got like a big round of applause at CPAC after he fucking fled Texas to go to to uh, Mexico when they they had that snowstorm that knocked out all the power. And he's like making jokes about it and stuff. And people were like, "Yeah, awesome, hilarious." And meanwhile, there's a bunch of people that like like froze to death because they weren't prepared down in Texas, whatever. But I, I just think that that stuff happens all the time. I think that the culture war now has a lot more to do with. Um, you know, the media machine. And that's not just Fox News and CNN, but it's also Twitter. Uh, it's also the newspapers and, and stuff like that. And I, I guess the newspapers not as much anymore because they're not as relevant. But, uh, you know, I'm sure I didn't listen to Ben Shapiro for all this, but I'm sure he had something to say about Mr. Potato Head uh, being uh, a non-binary, which, by the way, he's a potato. It makes sense. He kind of should. Well, you it's, know? <laughs> it's kind of a non-story because yeah. right after that news came out, uh, Hasbro tweeted that they weren't changing the name. It's just like something that got out of hand. Uh, you know, CNN got a hold of it and Fox News got a hold of it and they each ran their thing. I think I guess Fox News was running a whole thing uh, that they're canceling Mr. Potato Head, but it just wasn't true. It's just a non-story. They weren't. They, there was no move by Hasbro to change the name from Mr. to Mrs. Right. Potato. Right. Yeah, and I mean that 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 doesn't that doesn't really help the fact that the that Fox News turned it into like a cycle story and then CNN turned it turned the response to the cycle story into a cycle story, which is bad. <laughs> right. So it's like Fox News uh is is uh running this waste of time, right? But then CNN is acting like they're criticizing Fox News, but they're really doing the exact same thing, just a derivative of it. It's like, it's no better in terms of journalism. It's just a derivative of a bad story. But I will say that I kind of think, I kind of hope it was true because potato head just sounds like a obscure racial slur, you know? <laughs> the, the mister makes him sound dignified, but potato head, it's like, hey, fucking potato head, what are you doing over there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something you maybe call like an Irish guy or something. Right. I just think it also sounds like it'd be something silly to get your child. Like if there's a kid ever in a toy store and he's just like, I got to get potato head. What a, <laughs> what a fun toy to get. I don't want Spider-Man. Like I want potato head. <laughs> yeah. It just, yeah, it does sound like a monster from a fucking horror movie or something. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, when I saw this story come out and again, like eventually it was a non story to begin with, but when I saw it come out, I thought who gives a fuck? I always remember, by the time you get Mr. Potato Head, like in your house, did you have one growing no. up? You had an actual potato, right? As a Russian, yeah, we don't. They just gave me a potato <laughs> and some toothpicks. And you would just poke holes yeah. in it. And, yeah. Um, 
we had, I remember having a Mr. or a potato head, whatever we want to call it now. Uh, and once it's out of the box and it's been played with for a, a certain period of time, it just becomes a potato in the living room, like a, like a, like a plastic potato. And then it's got this little thing in the back where you can put all the shoes and mustaches and all that shit. It's it's nondiscreet. It's just literally a fucking potato. So for Fox News to have even thought that this could be some kind of story that they could get traction on, like they're they're clearly just trying to ramp people up. But if you actually look at what the fucking toy is, it's not like they're you know taking tits off Barbie or or something like that. You know, although something they would. that would be, I, I'm maybe. sure they're taking the tits off Barbie I, soon. Perhaps taking tits off Barbie is a bigger conversation because Barbie is a more iconic feminine figure. Mr. Potato Head is literally a potato with fake eyes that, like I said, once you once you have it out of the box, it's a literal fucking potato. It's not actually like they weren't like, uh, you know, he can no longer be a fucking guy with a. I, I don't even know what the comparison would be. But it or G.I. Joe or something like that. He no well, longer I, he's no longer think, in the army. He now is a right. fucking, you know. Well, I think the story they were trying to push and I, I think the, the real story is that they brought it up in a, some sort of executive meeting about whether or not they should drop the mister from Mr. Potato Head to make him gender neutral. Is that what they were? Is that what the thing was? That's what I that's. Yeah, that's my understanding of it, that it was like a memo that got leaked that basically was just like was like, we're thinking about doing this. And then that was right. But made I think, it to Fox News. But I think the reason why the story even had any, why we're even talking about it is not so much that whether or not they actually canceled Mr. Potato Head, but because things like that do occur in society, just because Mr. Potato Head specifically wasn't revoked, there are you know widespread moves throughout corporate America to... Um, to, to neutralize gender binary language, right? This is sort of an outcropping of transgender activism that corporate America is just capitulating to. I mean, that's the real problem here. And if, you know, Fox News isn't, isn't exactly uh, the source for the highest brow conservative um, talk uh, talking points, but if they were, they would have said something like that. You know, it's like they would have said something like Mr. Potato Head isn't getting canceled. But, you know, let's talk about the wider issue of why corporate America is, you know, folding to transgender activism, which in many cases, even liberals aren't aren't entirely on board with. Well, anytime something like this comes from corporate America, I'm always skeptical to begin with, because I don't I don't ever really think that corporate America has great intentions like I, I just think that they look at things and over and granted i'm not in the fucking hasbro boardroom or whatever but i think that they look at these things overall and say like this will make headlines and and maybe in the new era of um raising a child this fits more into because I, I don't know if it's even considered an educational toy or not it's just like a dumb potato which i keep saying over and over but you really There's hated something... that toy, didn't you? I didn't like, hate why it. Why couldn't just... I have gotten Hot Wheels? I, I did get Hot Wheels. I just thought that this was... I, I, I saw this story and I was just like, oh, like it, like of all of the things that, that could start a firestorm, it's like it's literally a fucking potato that has no actual gender anyway. But anytime... It's like I, I sort of think it, it... It's a weird thing because this is this is the major part of the culture war. You know, even if we go back to the like the Black Lives Matters 
protests in the the summer and stuff like that. That was the first time I had seen all of these corporations come out and say we support Black Lives. Like that was a profound change. That was yeah, the first time that, I've ever seen something like that. So then absolutely. It, it's it it's a foothold in the culture war because it's like, is that happening because the world is actually changing and we're making a push to sort of recognize an issue that has been an issue for a really long time that's been sort of ignored, swept under the rug, or at the least just sort of thought to be normal, you know? Um, or is it corporate America sort of cashing out on activism, which to me is always like, on one hand, it helps because it's an acknowledgement. It's like once there's an acknowledgement from corporate America, you know, my parents start to take it seriously. My parents are like, wow, Nike said something or wow, like comedy. I remember they did a... um I think for I think Comedy Central, all the Viacom networks did a blackout for eight minutes uh, to honor George Floyd having the the knee on his neck for eight minutes, and I, I remember just being in my parents' house when that was happening. And my mom was just like, "Jesus fucking Christ, I can't! This is wild. Like I've never seen anything like this. Not that it was negative, but it was it was more just like this is some serious shit. Like people are really this is like a real real issue." You know, as opposed to the past where it was just like Coca-Cola would never come out and be like, we got to st- or Ben and Jerry's. But I don't know if you saw, but Ben and Jerry's was putting out press releases that were like, we need to dismantle white supremacy. Fuck the system. Fuck po- the police. Like all this stuff. And I was just looking at this just like, this is an ice cream company. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like right. ice cream company taking a stand. Yeah. You have to wonder why corporate America has jumped on the woke bandwagon. And the reason they have is the same reason why they haven't why they didn't jump on in the, the past. bandwagon earlier right and the reason is that in the past the um the culture and the overton window was such that if you're a corporation and you take a political stance then that hurts your business right you don't want to um uh, uh, ostracize half your audience right or the people that you, if you're ben and jerry you don't want to take a liberal stance because you want conservatives well, to also buy ice cream. sure ben and jerry is a bad example because i think they've always been they're like old hippies so in their case, they've well, always like, but I get your point. Yes, your point right. is. So corporations are spineless entities with absolutely <laughs> no integrity whatsoever. They will jump on whatever trend they think they need to jump on to stay relevant because it's a, you know, we live in this very strange and toxic incentive structure where. A lot of things have become somewhat automated, especially through social media, right? It's kind of the way information spreads and the way um, things happen, so to speak, in the digital world or culturally is really out of our hands to a large extent because it's handled by algorithms and sort of these um, natural selection processes that happen throughout social media, right? You tweet something, it blows up, it, it gets picked up by some other people, that, you know, it goes viral and certain cultural memes get spread in a way that we don't really have control over. So the issue is when something builds up enough um, saturation in the culture such that it becomes relevant, corporations are going to jump on that same uh, on that same topic and promote it even more because you don't want to be the last guy to make your square black on Instagram. Right. You don't you don't want to be the last corporation standing. You know, if Nike's doing it and Coca-Cola's doing it and Amazon is doing it and Facebook is doing it and you're I don't know, uh think Adidas 
right? You don't want to be the last person because that's going to hurt your business and that's going to implicate you. So what we have is a cascading effect of positive feedback loops. So, and, and that's very dangerous because what that does, it, it's a positive feedback loop doesn't temper itself. It only gets more and more extreme. So whether you're a conservative or on the left, it's kind of like in the past, uh, the left and the right were sort of balancing each other, right? It's kind of like, uh, if you think about it, it's like they're pointing at each other and they're balancing, you know, sort of this way, right? Look, I'm making a, <laughs> I'm making a visual like this. On a podcast, you know, yes. <laughs> like a, I've got a big microphone, just two balls, just, you know, pointing at each other. But yeah, now, it's very phallic. <laughs> but now they're sort of facing the opposite direction where there's no resistance. You know, people go, the, the positive feedback loop on the right is going all the way into conspiracy theory. And the positive feedback loop on the left is taken all the way to extreme identity politics. Um, which is, of course, exacerbating identity politics on the right, which exacerbates identity politics on the left and so on. So we don't have much control over these things because most people don't actually want to um, – they, they don't actually believe a lot of the far-left woke stuff or the far-right conspiracy theories. You know, I, My personal estimation is that like 98% of people are just like you and me. You know, there are people that try to, you know, they don't want a far left society and they don't want um, Donald Trump in office. Right. So. But but their voices and their um, ideals are not being realized in the culture because they can't be because the incentive structure is being manipulated. Yes, but also exists on the in the framework of social media and algorithms and things that we just don't have control over. In other words, our technology has outpaced our ability to control it. Uh, I I feel where you're coming from, Gene. I, I don't think that you're necessarily wrong. I think that the... I think that those people are seen in the sense that I do think most people in this country are... I don't even want to say necessarily moderate. They probably lean to one way or another, but they're probably not crazy about it. You know, um, I do think though that even these corporations, at this point, not taking a stand is taking a stand. You know, like not, I, I don't want to use. I'm not. I don't know the specifics or whatever. But let's say Chick Fil A in the past has done some, has had some suspect stances on things. In my opinion, at least, you know, like the 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 gay rights stuff. Uh, they've They've just been, they're like a traditionally conservative company. Um, so if, if Chick-fil-A doesn't post the black square or, or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is for the day that we're honoring, you know, if we're just talking about the Black Lives Matter movement specifically, that's kind of taking a stance. And you start to see it. It's like the guy, I think it came up in either the last week or the week before, but that kid who was the, uh, the country singer who uh, said the N-word, People viewed that as sort of a, a, a counter, I guess at this point, a counterculture stance, you know, and Trump people or like hyper conservatives made his music number one, not because it was any good, but because he did something that they support as, a, you know, a, a people that are sort of um, being scrubbed out of modern times in a way. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think, you know, th- this notion and this idea, it really comes from the left only and not from the right of not t- 
taking a stance is taking a stance. I think that but, that is an incredibly dangerous position to take. I, I, whether, because something like Chick Fil A, right? They, you know, they are taking a stance, right? They're an openly conservative company, let's just say, right? And they have taken a particular stance on gay rights before, and that's their choice. But they are taking a stance. And this country singer that you said, you know, said the end. I'm not familiar with that My story. My name is Morgan Whalen. Right, but sure, but you know, by I guess saying the N word, he's taking a stance, right? So th- these yes. are people that are, <laughs> You're right. yeah, that, that are that are positively, you know, um, coming out as taking a particular side in a in a debate. But somebody, but the idea that j- simply by refraining from taking a stance, you are being active—that is a incredibly pernicious and dangerous um, position to take. Because it turns everybody who isn't openly an activist into the enemy, right? But I'm not and saying it, I'm not saying that's how I feel. I'm just saying that that's what I think the temperature is right now. Like I think, uh, yeah, that's what I I'm think saying. That's as well. the yeah. I think that's the issue. Like part of the issue is like. Again, hey, but what do you think on that? Thing. Do you do you feel like you know insisting that somebody somebody is either an activist? I mean, this is kind of what we were talking about one of the uh, previous episodes. You know, the notion of anti-racism. Race anti-racism is not merely not being racism. Anti-racism implies that you must be a activist in a particular way in order to fulfill the definition of anti-racism, which is set by so-called anti-racists. It's essentially a cultic mentality that you have to behave in step with these this collectivist movement. Or else you're against the movement, right? You're you're either with us or you're against us. But in order to be with us, you have to be positively active. You can't just say you're with us. You can't even say that you're uh, that you agree with us. You have to behave in a particular way. I and think that it's a, in, I think it depends on the type of business. Like I think it would have been so. Going back to like the Nike and Adidas conversation, if we're talking just about the black squares and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff, I don't see how you can't. You have to keep in mind first off who buys their product. You have to keep in mind who they're. You know your big, your big, um, uh. I mean the athletes that you guys you guys that Nike and Adidas and all these brands sort of, uh, prop up, like, how do you like someone like LeBron James, who's a a Nike guy who is, who is politically active and uses his voice and his platform, uh, which I am a fan of, and I'm a fan of his. I don't really know how you could be an executive at Nike or be Phil Knight or any of these guys and just see this stuff happening and, and be like, all right, well, you know, all these other companies are doing this. What are we doing? You know, I I don't think that you can do that if you're if the base of the people that are buying your shit are black or, or you know minorities, um, and the people that you sort of are are using as your marketing machine are also black. You know, if, if, yeah, if it's sure. a specific cause. Now to go back to say like uh, you know, do I think Burger King? I don't know, but that's the other thing too. It's like McDonald's. I mean, dude, McDonald's is always marketing towards you know towards uh, who mike towards urban uh yeah <laughs> uh, minorities it's true i mean when we work at the radio station every single the the two i feel well, like well, the only two ads that we had at a at a white conservative station that ever were for um you know people of color in any capacity were mcdonald's 
uh, and the the check cashing places, Payomatic. Remember Payomatic? <laughs> Those are the only no, two things. But- those were the only two things, and as everything else was just like buy gold or like whatever. So I think it depends on so, the so type black of business people wouldn't that you do are. That, so they don't buy gold. Black people don't no, like buying like, expensive things like gold. No, you know, that's they not just what buy I meant. Sneakers and burgers. The buy the buy gold ads are targeted to like sixty five year old white people who are afraid right, right. of of like the the world ending. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. a it's a it's a it's a it's a safety buy. It's something that you buy to feel safe about the future. I'm not. I, yeah. I'm not. This not. It has no overtones of race. It just is the reality of like who they were trying to market to, and that's the whole point of this whole thing. It's like what I'm saying. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I guess if you're Nike, right, and most of your, you know, you, you've already sort of established a uh, brand identity around you know a, a particular aspect of American culture, right? But you know. And, and you, then you made the example of Burger King. But what if you're Amazon, right? What if you're AWS, Amazon Web Services, who took down Parler, you know? And what if you're somebody, what if you're a company that has really no culturally identifiable um, customer base? I think it, the issue, so like Bezos in that example, like Bezos is already, he's Lex Luthor, you know, he's like a supervillain to begin with. So I think that the more, of a runaway capitalist uh, fucking monstrosity that you run, the more you kind of have to appear to be a good guy, you know, in some ways. So I think that it, it the thing, Mike. Jeff Bezos to, to, <laughs> to appear charitable and to appear to be a guy that's part of the change, whether that is but, legitimate or not, I, I don't know, but yeah, you know. but that's, that's the whole issue here is that turning, you know, uh, Amazon is responsible for probably the biggest um, decimation of small business right? and so-called in black owned years. businesses. Yeah, in a hundred years, they're, oh, they're an black owned, white monolith. owned. I mean, it's not just yeah. it's not a it's not a racial thing. It's just a it's a capitalism thing. It's like a crush crush the smaller competition at any cost. You know, right? Exactly. So, I mean, uh, uh, Amazon has no leg to stand on when it comes to this sort of grassroots populist activism. But the whole problem is that we live in a culture where what people seem to really covet or or value are these like tokenized superficial gestures of woke activism uh, in lieu of any sort of tangible substantive change. I mean, Jeff Bezos is he's doing nothing for any woke cause really, right? Other than taking down Parler. I mean, on, on some level, these tech um, these tech monopolies are uh, just openly bias against conservatives and uh, just manipulating information and the, you know, the access to truth across the board. Yet at the same time, they get these woke points by, you know, just doing these superficial things like on black his during black history month, you know, Amazon high, uh, um, put black owned businesses on the front page of Amazon. And yeah, but Gene, this is, this is the adverse to like what the culture was like in the fifties and the sixties when big business hated hippies. It's the same thing. It's just flipped and it's just more in vogue right now to be, uh, you know, liberal and, you know, woke if for lack of a better word, it's just, it's the thing though. The fucking Kentucky fried chicken guy. Like, uh, I don't, you know, or, or, uh, I'm just trying to think of like big business conservatives off the top of my head. But like, if you think dudes that like ran fucking like standard oil or any of these or any big time corporations, you know, pre, I don't know, 
maybe the 90s or the late 80s or whatever, like until the times of like Apple and Nike and places like that. Like it was just assumed that if you ran a business, you were a fucking like conservative guy and, and you know, die hippie die. That was sort of the the thing. And now the culture's just sort of flipped. And it might, who knows, man? Like it, it could flip back. It, it sec, sec, it's secular. It, it's secular, secular. It comes in cycles. Circular. Circular, yeah. circular, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it it comes in cycles, and I mean, like, there's there's we're in a we're living in like a, a primarily liberal time, I think, across the the, the board right now. But that's not I to mean, say I, that that uh, that can't change in five, ten years, twenty years. You know, I just this is how it works. I think. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly things can change, and uh, yeah, m- maybe it will change. But I, I will say this. I don't think this is just another cycle of a particular, you know, things were conservative before and now they're liberal for a little bit and maybe it'll change back. I think things are fundamentally changing, not on the on the um, spectrum of liberal to conservative, but on. Look, if you if you think about the um, political spectrum as kind of being left and right. Right. You can sort of look at it that way, this dualistic um, balance of people on the left and then people on the right. But really, you can also look for it in terms of um, a an orthogonal uh, spectrum, which is authoritarian versus libertarian, right? But when you look at it on that spectrum, we are moving in a far authoritarian um, direction. And that's different from the way things were before. I mean, we may be more so-called liberal, but we actually aren't more liberal. We're more left we're, and we're less liberal. You know, liberal implies the um, the value of things like individual liberties, of freedom of speech, of um, personal accountability, uh, and of the individual just in general. But we're more moving away from individualism and towards collectivism, right? That is the culture on the right and on the left. But the dominant culture in the mainstream is left, collectivist, and authoritarian. And that is not liberal, right? Those aren't liberals. We're not living in a liberal culture. We're living in a left authoritarian collectivist dystopia. I don't and know if I fully it, agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think that there are. I, I think, mean, I can walk. I can walk back dystopia a little bit because we're not. <laughs> I will say, I, I am. I am surprised to see that the left is sort of applauding. So, like, let's talk about this Dr. Seuss thing. Uh, cause this is something that I feel like is less likely to get cut <laughs> from this episode. <laughs> uh, I am a little bit surprised to see, I have very mixed feelings about this in particular, obviously, if you're not caught up on it, uh, Dr. Seuss's estate, uh, decided that they were going to stop publication of six books, uh, from his catalog, uh, none of which are particularly popular i think the the one about the zoo is the most popular one i forget what that's called but um they pulled these six off because they have racist cartoons in them racist interpretations of african americans and uh asian people and and all that stuff um and this sort of is in line with everything that we've been talking about cancel culture i have always been against the idea of Huckleberry Finn is the one that always gets talked about as a book that's going to get pulled out of publication and should be pulled out of schools, whatever. Um, I am almost always against that. I think the one 
caveat here that I do. I don't even know if I necessarily say I want to agree with, but I am. If if this didn't come down, this isn't an edict from school districts or the government or even the publisher. This was his his estate deciding. We look back on this. We don't like the, you know, 50, 60 years later, we don't like the, or I mean, probably even longer than that. I don't know when they went into publication, but all these years later, we look back at the publication and we don't like what we're seeing. Uh, Let's just pull it off. Like it doesn't, it's doesn't affect the cat in the hat. Doesn't affect the places you might go. Doesn't affect any of those books, green eggs and ham, whatever. Um, And I think that if, Think of it like this, Gene, because I just assume that you are automatically out on even what I'm saying. But think of it like this. Think about there being an early Gene, even social villains, even like some of the early episodes of our show. Would you look back on that a couple years later, maybe even 10 years from now and say, "Eh, maybe maybe looking back on it, I don't know if I love that I said this or put that out there. I mean, sure. I don't love what I said 25 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally on board with things like that. Perfect. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) So, yeah, I I don't disagree with the general idea of looking back on arts that was innocuous at the time right it was fine at the time it was released but then sometime later you look back on it and it's you know pretty unflattering you know if you don't look at it in the most charitable light and sure i mean certain things just don't play well years later you look at movies in the 80s and certain jokes and uh and tropes that were Dude, funny go, and popular go back farther than the 80s have you ever seen uh any of these any of the marx brothers movies Groucho um, Marx is like a comedy legend, but there is, I think it's a day at the races. There is a minstrel show scene in a day at the races and it is like hard to watch. Like it's just, yeah, like they, sure. get, I, they I, escape, they, they're, they're being chased by the villains of the movie and there's a musical number and to get out of this is Groucho Marx, this is like, you know, comedy legend Groucho Marx to get out of the situation. They rub mud on their faces to fit in with the, because they're like hiding in like a, like a, a camp with black people. Uh, where I forget where it takes place, but, and then they like, that's how they like escape is that they like pretend to be black. They rub the stuff on their face while there's a bunch of black people singing. It's like, and this was a movie that was made in, I probably the late thirties, but it's like looking at it now, you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is bad. This is bad. Yeah. But I mean, sure it is. But I think first of all, people make those things out to be more, um, more outrageous than they should be. You know, there's kind of like, there's a cultural um, incentive to be as outraged as possible about something like blackface or a minstrel show. Right. Where if you're just sitting alone watching the movie, you may not just go, Oh my my Lord. No, but you might, you might go, Ooh, ooh." well, you may look at it and go, kind of, kind of uncomfortable. Right. It's kind of, this, for instance, Melissa and I watched uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. I don't know. Have yeah. you ever seen it? Oh, yes, I have. And we've talked look, about uh, Mickey Rooney on this on this podcast. <laughs> Asian American yeah. hero, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and it's, you know, I've, I had never seen that movie and I thought it was an amazing movie. I really liked it. I thought um, Audrey Hepburn was probably, you know, she was nominated for an Oscar for that role. And I, I thought she should have gotten it. It was it was an amazing movie. Just a, a beautiful, wonderful aesthetic well executed and wonderfully written and Mickey Rooney is just such 
a turd floating <laughs> in the middle of this beautiful pond. I mean, it, you have this beautiful, you know, fountain with swans and ducks right in the middle of Manhattan and just a big turd. Yeah, for context. Floating right in the center. If you've and never seen the movie, Mickey Rooney, who is a uh, like a stocky white guy who at this point is probably like yeah. in his mid-40s or whatever, well, is he, just I playing... Well, no, uh, when they made the movie. Oh, I mean. yeah. Uh, oh, I think he's dead. He's dead now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's playing hes playing this cartoon character of a Chinese man yeah. who's the landlord of the of the, bill, of the building. I, I mean, I could even see as, you know, as misplaced as it is, you could have thrown a character like that into like, uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Like if it was a comedy movie in the 60s. Absurdist, or something, something over the like top. that. Yeah, you yeah. could have thrown it in and you know, it wouldn't have made it better, but it would have been at least placed well. This is probably one of the worst directorial choices that I've ever witnessed in a movie in my entire life. Like the juxtaposition between kind of movie and aesthetic of the movie, and then this ridiculous clownish caricature of an Asian guy. With like big buck teeth that he got from the right. makeup department and yeah you're not even sure that he's asian you're like is this like some <laughs> sort retarded of uh, guy? yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah is this just like a fat kid with down syndrome yeah I mean, yeah it, it looks i don't bad. understand this character it, and it, he's sleeping on the floor chopsticks yeah. and yeah it's just a complete ridiculous character. so something like that you know you watch back and it's regretful that it's there and much in the same vein, you know, there's books and literature and, you know, all kinds of media where the, um, you know, the things that we would look at as so-called racist today are, in my opinion, less racist and just more misplaced. It's, they didn't age well, right? They're, they're, they're dated. And sure, in certain cases, it may um, draw on a cultural sort of form of discrimination or sort of a bad way of thinking about um, minorities and things like that. But, you know, if you give it, I think the problem now is that we don't give things or at least the culture doesn't allow for anything less than the least charitable interpretation of something. In other words, you see, you know, like, uh, like one of the Dr. Seuss books that was banned had a Asian character, you know, running with chopsticks. I, I found the image, right? And this is this Asian Susian type of character running with chopsticks. Now, personally, I don't necessarily see how that's quote unquote racist because it's not depicting an Asian person in an unflattering light. I mean, the only thing I could say that didn't age well is the fact that you would portray somebody as so you know, they're, they're being Asian being such a fundamental part of their character, right? That's what's no longer in vogue. You know, you want to see people as more multidimensional individuals or, or, or people rather than their, you know, superficial um, national identity, which, by the way, is pretty ironic that we only now at the same time want to see people as part of an identity group. So there's like a certain hypocrisy there. But nevertheless... Uh, I don't. I would really see that character as racist so much as as it is just kind of like a. I don't know. It's just an Asian guy, and also well, at the yeah. same time, you you have to admit that you know nowadays we there the Asian people right now in America are like you know hello hey what's going on I'm Asian right they sound like you they dress like you they talk like uh, you yeah and me. American but there culture was a point, yeah. Yeah, go but ahead, there Jay. was a point in America where if you met an Asian person, they were probably an immigrant. 
know, maybe first generation, maybe second generation Asian immigrants, and maybe they dressed in, in the traditional garb. Or maybe in the in the case of Dr. Seuss, he was portraying, you know, these are books for children, right? Children can't necessarily, or I wouldn't say can't, but you generally don't want children to have to process the complex identity of a person who is Asian, right? So you want to depict somebody, you know, across the globe. What are the people in Asia like? Well, they're like this. And in the 1920s, you know, or, or you know, at the turn of the century or close to it when that book was written, if you go to Asia, people did tend to dress in, you know, fairly traditional garb. They did eat with chopsticks. I mean, that's not, they didn't necessarily just adopt the fork and mass in 1930. This was a particular way that people just ate. You know, it's not wrong to depict people the way they were at a certain time, even though they're not that way anymore. Right. Well, and I think American culture, I kind of think that's what's happening with, with, I think that's what cancel culture in some ways in the US is. Like, I think for the first time, we're really forging what modern American culture is. And like you just said, how if you saw an Asian person in, in New York right now, like, a, like an Asian person who grew up in the, in the US uh, and like, went to high school and college and, and had an American upbringing, they would, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm Fumi. Cause just, uh, sorry, Fumi. I had to bring <laughs> just a name, name a guy that I th- was thinking of, but like, you know, using Fumi Abe, who was a, a pal of ours from stand up in New York, like as an example, he's like from Ohio. He's like a fucking he's a nice kid, you know, he dresses, but he dresses better than Eugene, but like he dresses like me, you know, like we, <laughs> we look that very similar. Like he looks like an American kid. You wouldn't, be like oh man Fumi's gotta run down the street with chopsticks but um I think that that's kind of what we do like we we're kind of the idea that people can live in this country and have sort of culture from another country within America is something that I feel like a lot of academics don't fully grasp it is hilarious to me that even as an italian person i am exotic to people like not here but i don't think you're exotic I to am. anybody mike i Gene, gotta be honest i'm telling you 100 <laughs> percent. like like i'm telling you like i have i have gone out with girls that are just like white or whatever and it's like oh wow he's an italian guy do you make spaghetti and do you eat mozzarella and do you like it i can't imagine anybody's ever said that to you they have do you eat mozzarella everybody in America, eats mozzarella. We're try, like six hundred pounds from, a person. Try, <laughs> try dating a girl from the South, dude. When you date a girl from Alabama, she's it, like, you would be uh, exotic I mean, too. All right, you sure. know what I mean? But do you right, get, do you right. get so my there point? Are, that there's like, like, yes, I don't think that there are. I mean, with the exception of literally China, like Mott Street, uh, I don't think that there are a lot of interpretations of these types of Asian people running around with the fucking rice hat on their head. I, right. mean, I, I don't want to say uh, that there that there's only a few because there's none. I've never, I've been down in Chinatown a million times. I've never seen somebody running around with a fucking like like rice field hat. You know what I mean? Same thing with the Italians. Like how it's it's funny that like our ethical or ethnic interpretations would be some guy in a leather jacket and like fucking slick back hair. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like eating right. a bowl of spaghetti. Like maybe that's that's a little more factual, but I, I, yeah, I think that that's sort of what's happening right now is like, we're stripping people. Like if you're going to be a, an American, this is like the prototypical American. Cause the other thing is like 
these ethnic groups that are here. And again, this goes back to the entire overarching conversation we keep having about the culture war. It's like the, I feel like the Bush era of American when we were like rah, rah flags everywhere and everything was kind of like the overseas. I think the interpretation of what we were was kind of like the ugly American. Does that make sense? Like to kind of like the, Hey, we'll fucking kick your ass buddy. Like whatever. Well, I guess, I mean, the American culture just in general is, probably one of the worst cultures on the planet <laughs> it's it's nothing it's like devout of anything it's like it's just bland and very like no I, w- I wouldn't say that i mean let's i guess we don't have time to get into that but i don't know i, I think the point with canceling a lot of these um works of art based on these racist allegations they don't quite hold up because first of all merely depicting um, somebody in a stereotypical way isn't necessarily a an example of racism because again we're just holding uh, past works to the standards of today and then we're retroactively insisting that people don't consume those works. It's one thing. I mean, look if doctor if the Dr. Seuss um, estate decided that these books don't hold up well and they don't want to have them have have them uh, re- keep uh, keep them in circulation. I mean, I, I think that's a fair assessment right yeah and I mean, it's their decision it, it is nobody a put the screws call, to right? them yeah nobody was right. like dr seuss get these books out of here so in that aspect of it i respect it and i respect the fact that they're just like all right we don't really want this out there anymore it's a dated uh it's a dated depiction of something and it's like there's yeah. no reason for it. it's not even like exactly, a book that makes us you know it's not an iconic book where you're just like oh no no great exit ham what am i gonna read to my but, kids but here's the thing though the the issue is not those specific books being taken off the shelves or the decision that the estate made it's this fallout you know it's this sort of can, uh extrapolation that because we're canceling, the, let's look at Cat in the Hat now. Let's uh, let's um, inspect how the Cat in the Hat contributes to white supremacy and to um, imperialist culture. It's it's always taken further to a level where you know you're going to look at something and see it in the least charitable imp- interpretation, Dude, and then look to cancel those things. We're overly educated. This is the problem. We're at a point where like. Everybody went to college. Everybody has a fucking liberal arts degree, and this is what you can do. You can sit around and you can you can put Actually, context to anything, and you can put context to anything and make it. You, you can have these conversations about whatever. It's like writing a college thesis paper, writing an essay about right. You know what I mean? And and like that's kind of where we're at right now. And people aren't. But good. But the reason that's the case. Yeah. I mean, you put it as overly educated and sure. I would say that people are perfectly educated Mm, because a a lot of this, a a lot of these ideas and tools for deconstructing things comes directly out of the universities, which have been hijacked by postmodern critical, uh, critical theory. So, I mean, people have been basically indoctrinated, I was going to say trained, but really they've been indoctrinated to look at everything and problematize it, right? This is sort of the, you know, titular um, concept behind um, grievance studies, right? They're called grievance studies because you're being trained to find a grievance in society, right? Whatever it may be, gender studies or um, so-called whiteness studies, you're being trained to find to problematize whatever aspect of society is, you know, being taught in that particular area for the purpose of political activism. So we've 
given up this uh, you know, the university as a place for truth seeking and to play this sort of game where you know we're going to come together and try to figure out how the world works into a um, funnel for political activism. And that's kind of where all of this comes down to. That's kind of the problem with Dr. Seuss being canceled is because it's not really about the books. It's about the greater narrative of problematizing American culture and society so that society can be discredited and replaced with a new culture that's defined by a particular political cohort. Overall, though, I think that like the one the one thing that I'm curious to know your opinion on, because I feel like for a long time we were both just like, whatever, fuck it. These things existed 20 years ago, 30, 50, 60 years ago, whatever. Again, using Pepe Le Pew as the example, like the argument for him being a character that sort of I think that they the term that they use is perpetuates rape culture. I don't find that to be that crazy of a of a critique of Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, I mean, it's a ridiculous character. It's a raping yeah. skunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, the whole episode is he's just, I mean, that's been a joke for, yeah. for years, right? Is yeah, that he's yeah. just chasing this cat is trying to fuck her. I mean, what is he going to do when he catches her? We never, they never thought that out, did they? They never it's did. Just, but yeah, the I whole mean, episode I'm sure, he's chasing I'm sure it's not chasing. something that you could put on uh, Looney Tunes. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I guess it's like wait, a CSI he did, he did episode. Catch her. Yeah. He just kind of like kisses her, you know, and she's trying to get away. But it's because she's he's stinky, right? That's the joke, though, is that he's right. he's uh, amorous, but he smells just like me. So, <laughs> you know, uh, in some way, I you know I really identify with that character. It's like, hey, come here, you know. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to be nice to you, but you know, there's a foul odor, and that's not that's not necessarily uh, you know everyone's uh, you know everyone's cake, except Melissa. <laughs> You yeah, know, M- M- Melissa seems to be into your fucking smelly ass. Which M- is Melissa's like you. the if Pepe Le Pew caught the cat and the cat was like, you know what, I'm into this. Yeah, right. And then we don't have to have this conversation at all, which is nice. Exactly. It was just a, that's just a love story. Yeah. So overall, we're in agreement that things can sort of get phased out after a certain period. Yeah, of time. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but the the point is, they should be phased out in a non-political way. Non-political way. Yeah. Okay. I, and I'm with that. That's why, I mean, to me, Huck Finn has got to stay. Context is also matter, matters. Well, why do you like Huck Finn so much? What's the... I just think, the, I, uh, I think Huck Finn is one of the first great American satires. And I think that it, it is like a, it's a perfect depiction of sort of what the country was like at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a satire, but it's not, you know, going back to the Mickey Rooney conversation, that's, ri- that's a ridiculous depiction. Right. You know, um... The characters in Huck Finn, dude, that was like edgy and groundbreaking for, I don't know exactly what year in the 1800s that came out, but like, I got a character where like a, like a a runaway slave is, is one of the protagonists of the story, you know? Right. It's like that, that's important for the time. And, um, I think that because the word, the N word is in there and that's the character's name. Uh, you know, there's a reason he's called that. Um, yes, it's like an ugly thing to hear. Again, it's like going back to to just sort of like seeing the the minstrel show in the in the uh, the Marx Brothers movie and just saying like ooh ooh. But there is also, I think there's context for why that's in there, and that's a little bit of a different story between like that and Pepe Le Pew, for example, which is just like 
literally a cartoon of a of a skunk that's trying to fuck another skunk even though she doesn't want to want it you know what i mean oh she's a cat that's the thing oh is that what it is a cat oh yeah then that's even worse (laughs) gets painted as a skunk and he's like oh look at this beautiful skunk oh right that's right i I forgot not only does she is she offended by his odor but you know he's also trying to perpetuate an interspecies relationship yeah there's a lot of problems (laughs) (laughs) all right so we're then we're in agreement um and that's rare i think lately for us but that's good (laughs) ronnie anything Final thoughts? I don't think so. Okay. All right. Sounds like we should wrap then. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll, let you get, I'll let you get to the editing, which is going to take a long time. <laughs> Sorry, Ronnie. I'm really making you earn your wage here. <laughs> uh, Gene, where can the people find you? Do you want them to find Nowhere. you? Nowhere. No, I don't. No. Yeah, okay. Just come back here next month, right? In fact, my name's not even Gene. Mike just calls me that because he, he thinks it's funny. Yeah. Uh, well... I don't even know how to end this now that that I was just throwing <laughs> such a curveball. <laughs> thank you for being here. Uh, we'll oh, see yeah. you again next month. Listeners, thank you very much for listening. If you have not already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we cut the Hitler thing, so uh, pat on the back for me. <laughs> you can email the show, coskrules at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram, at Mike Coscarelli, also on Twitter. Uh, you can find associate producer Ronnie Side at Ronnie side on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm going to wrap up this clumsy ending. We'll see you next week, guys. Appreciate you listening. And until then, goodbye. Mike Coscarelli rules is hosted by Mike Coscarelli. Executive producer, Mike Coscarelli. Supervising producer, Mike Coscarelli. Associate producer, Ronnie side edited by Mike Coscarelli. Sound design by Mike Coscarelli. Podcast and social artwork by Chris Cheney. Special thanks to all the losers and the haters.